upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. And now for something completely different. Hey, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. I'm in three Halls of Fame. For the young fans, they don't give a damn. They just give a damn about themselves and what they're hearing now. And I got no problem with those rules. I know the rules going in. I'm happy to play the game that way. And when Ivan came off with that uh, knee drop from the top rope and he bent me, I thought that something happened. I couldn't hear a thing. You could have heard the pin drop in that arena. It touched me so deeply that when I went in the dressing room, I really felt depressed. I'll tell you that, I'll tell you right to his face. If it's Hogan and I, if he wanted to get in a real street fight with me, trust me, he would lose. And he knew it. You know, that's the other thing. They give you the belt and they're like, okay, you're in charge of me. I was like, what? When you mentioned a guy like Harley Race, that kind of legendary status, it's obvious why people would get upset. Or as I'm concerned, Roddy Piper was not a wrestler. He wasn't even a good worker. If he had to go out and work his way to the top and not have good friends like Jim Barnett. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying he's not a good guy. He's just not a tough guy. Bro, I swear to you, I don't have an ego. Like, I don't give a crap. I, that stuff is not important to me. People don't know me. They have no idea of who I am. They know of me as being a fictional character that they saw on TV. People didn't understand that, you know, the guy they saw in the ring that happened to be using his real name and happened to actually be the president of the company, they really believed that that guy that they loved to hate was actually a pretty decent guy. And I think many people have the perception that I really was that character. Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I'm your host, JP John Paz. With me today, very special guest. He's an author, a writer, a journalist, a wrestling historian. He's also a teacher, a lawyer, an editor, a podcaster. This guy is all over the place. He's Mr. Oliver Bateman. Oliver, welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? Hey, John, happy to be on the show. Great to talk wrestling. My wife doesn't really let me talk wrestling during the, the daytime hours, so I'm glad to be talking about it with you. Same here. My wife hates the business, believe it or not. Absolutely hates it. Yeah, can't can't stand it. Even though our little daughter watches it now, seems to really like it. Um, she's not a big fan. My wife's not a big fan. I know. I feel like before my daughter was playing with all my wrestling guys, and we're talking that, my elder. That is that is happening right now. Nice. That is happening right now for me. Yes. And we're talking. And my... She can hold up. She can hold up Bobby Lashley. He's. I mean, he's very recognizable. Or Brock. Uh, Brock Lesnar. He's very recognizable. She can hold those up, uh, and knows who they are. See, I got my old LJNs. My, my guys from oh, the eighties. Oh wow! Wow. Those. So those big boys. Those are great action figures. That was a great series. Some truly low level guys in that series too for the time, but this, which makes it even better. Oh yeah. You no. Know? Yep. I sold a ton of them. This is a Ted RCD figure, right? Yes, yeah, and Outback Jack, yep. <laughs> like, it's just, like, the idea that Ted RCD has an action figure is, is great to me. I, I'm a huge fan of the bench press, so Ted, Ted RCD was a great, great bench presser, and, I mean, was definitely in the wrestling business, uh, so I'm glad he has a, I'm glad he has an action figure. And Outback Jack, too, and Corporal Kirshner. It's like, wow, how the hell do yep. these guys get figures? Oh, my God. That's as good as it gets, uh, I mean, for some of the guys. They, I mean, they had good, you know, they had long and good careers in the business, so they did their part. But, like, to get the action figure, that was WWE, like, at, uh, the height of its colorful, cartoony 
I mean, just just being like a low level guy there, Outback Jack. You 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 were somehow a star. I, I don't think it's that you know in that weird way, in that like cartoon way. You, you were you were you were part of that. So amazing stuff. She does not have any of those. I I had those years ago. I had a few, not many. Uh, but you know, now she has the, like the ones with like the fully articulated arms and all of that stuff, the different series. I love the LJNs. I mean, they're, they're so great. You know, she was going through them and I, I just kept like, I think eight or 10 of them that I really liked. And I regretfully sold a bunch of them years ago for a decent, decent amount of money. But you know, she's going through, she's like Roddy Piper. I'm like, yes, yes. They would be, they would be great for a a two-year-old. Like I've got a two-year-old, so they like the way those set up. You know, they're big, kind of bulky. They'd be great for a two-year-old. Not the uh, King Kong Bundy one, though. That one weighs like twenty pounds. <laughs> remember how heavy it was? Like I remember I could beat the crap out of my brother with it, and you wouldn't have any idea. Like no, they're just playing with the wrestling figures. You can just knock them out with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm getting a lot of plastic. You want to be accurate, I, I guess with. With old, with old King Kong Bundy. Oh, yeah. So with you, getting back to you, did I miss anything? I feel like I named about 10 things that, that you're kind of known for that you've done. Did I miss anything? My day, job, my, my day job, I work in marketing, but that's not that's, that's not that's not as glamorous as all the, the freelance or the, the tie-ins to wrestling. The main thing I do from a wrestling perspective these days is uh, – I write, I've written about it for a lot of different publications, but I'm the primary obituary writer for The Ringer, like the uh, the website The Ringer. Uh, I work with David Shoemaker. You know, I've been friends with him for a while. And before that, I mean, his, his series was, you know, Dead Wrestlers at um, over at Deadspin. He's got a book on that. So we've kind of kept that going. And I, I think the hook to the to the articles I write, even though uh, my friend Ian Douglas was on your show, you know, great great writer of autobiographies, and currently writing a lot about wrestling for Mel Magazine. But I uh, I would uh, I, I consciously try to write for casuals when I do the obituaries that we choose to do. I mean, because they're usually someone that was big enough to justify a write-up. I've done a few that are like slightly more obscure. They're not obscure to me or you, like Bob Armstrong, but to, to a casual maybe. And at the same time, I, you know, I try to do, I have research ready to go. If they've got an autobiography, I read it. If there's stuff I can pull out of newspapers.com on their, their past, like pre-wrestling sports career, like, you know, Ian and I, when New Jack died, we got all of his college football stats. You know, we worked together that night and pulled all that stuff together. At the same time, I did the New Jack piece so anybody could kind of pick it up and, and read it. You know, I'm no Dave Meltzer when it comes to, like, just the wealth of knowledge, uh, breadth of knowledge in, in the industry. But I, I like to be thorough in the pieces that I do. So... As far as like Meltzer, I feel like he does, but he's obviously very polarizing too. But he does some good obituaries too, and, and stuff oh, like yeah, that. His two tribute, his two tributes books were are, were great. Oh yeah, excellent. Meltzer's really good when it comes to he he likes to get a lot of details into everything that he does. So like everything's very detailed packed. I mean to to like 
he doesn't miss anything in that sense. Like the same with, you know, his match grading or something like that. You know, he, a star could turn on whether a guy remembers to sell the right arm at the end of it, was injured at the beginning of the match, at the end of the match when his hands held up in victory or something. Like he's a detail oriented guy. And he'll just like bombard you with details. The tributes essays are packed. The two books uh, are packed with material. I mean, the longer pieces when they would come out in the observer are packed with material. And I, I try at least in the, when I'm doing the obituaries for the ringer, I try to make them detail filled, but a little more casual, you know, Dave, Dave has an audience that, that will know everything that Dave and Wade Keller and everybody else uh, has written or said a lot of times. And I'm writing for, you know, a different audience, especially in that situation. Like, you know, the ringer audience is the wrestling observer audience. Yeah. I think that's what I kind of know you for too. Those obituaries, you know, that's how I was like, wow. Like you always were on top of that. Everybody, you know, anybody that passed, you were all over it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's a, I mean, John, you know, like there was, there was this, this period where pro wrestling was defined by guys passing away. Yep. Unfortunately. Yeah. Like the, the sort of, you know, kind of, drug use and steroid use that defined the late seventies, early eighties, mid eighties, nineties led to a lot of guys passing away prematurely, but it also created this situation where the mainstream media and the mainstream sports media, like the ringers owned by Spotify, like the mainstream sports media, they cover that stuff because that's how the general public. uh, Now, I mean, wrestling is, is much more, especially the WB variant and with AEW being back on TNT and TBS like it's maybe it's more mainstream in that sense, but the general public still sees it as this sport where guys are die, you know, dying young, dying beat up, dying tragically, et cetera. Even if like with Bob Armstrong, that's not the case, you know, when he just died of old age. Um, but that's the, that's the narrative, like everything. And like the fact that vice has that, that series, the dark side series, um, and they have good they have good pieces of research built into some of those segments, but they still highlight like the stories that casuals either know about or will talk about if they see it. It's always like a lot of times it's violent, you know, it's the underbelly of wrestling, it's the bad stuff, or it's the dark stuff, and that's that's how that stuff is framed. I mean. I personally don't see it that way. I mean, I'm more interested in just the history and tradition of the sport. I'm more interested in the the practice of the sport. I'm more interested in really things like the territorial structure of the sport. Um, you know, that the promotion that like the interview styles of different guys, the way guys meshed in matches and stuff like that. Got what guys are, you know, all these details, what they earned at different periods of time. Uh, hard to get a straight answer on that, but I've got like a pay book from uh, 82 in St. Louis shows, you know, how much guys were making per week, you know, like Flair was getting like three grand a week when he was there and on top. So it gives you a sense of what he might've made if he worked the whole year in that territory. He wouldn't, but those are the details that are really interesting to me. And I can pack some of those into the obituaries, but they're still always looking for track. You know, the, the public desire is for tragedy you know, like tragedy, wrestling is still this kind of dark, mysterious thing, even if there's been all these crossover superstars. 
And, and that's, that's what I serve up in those obituaries. I try to keep it at the same time when I'm doing them, I try to keep it on. I really do a lot on their early career pre-wrestling. Like if they were an athlete beforehand, I like to, to document that pretty extensively. I find that very interesting. Like I did Paul Orndorff and, you know, what an interesting early athletic career, you know, not just a college football star, but a champion arm wrestler, guy who enters like a canoe race one time and wins it the first time. There's a newspaper article on that guy who basically could have played in the NFL, but kept walking out of camps. Um, just an interesting, uh, an interesting character. And even with New Jack, like people don't realize the extent to which he tried to succeed as a college football player. I and mean, when he did sort of succeed as a high school football player, I mean, that's, that's not really part of the New Jack narrative, especially, you know, if you look at him in later years, but I find that really interesting. Never would have guessed it. Yeah, Clark University of Atlanta for, for New Jack. And, you know, got some starts, played ball, good on defense. But that wasn't going to be his his future, obviously. He, he found what his future was going to be. When you do some of this stuff, is a lot of it from memory, though? Like like Orndorff, for instance. Are you knowing a lot of this stuff just because you were a fan? Or you really have to, like, research and get deep I... into the weeds with it? That's a, I mean, that's a good question. I know the outlines of a lot of their careers because I followed them. Sometimes guys flash in and out. So like Kamala, for example, I really started re- watching wrestling in 86 or 87. And Kamala like flashes in and out of the WWF and WCW at different periods of that time. And so I remember those matches vividly, like his match with The Undertaker and things like that, uh, or his time in Kevin Sullivan's stable. Things like that are really burnt into my brain. But, like, what he was, like, driving a truck between gigs and stuff like that, I, I didn't know that until I, in later years I read his autobiography that, that he did with Kenny Casanova for, just for, like, leisure. You know, I read these usually on my Kindle and I tab them out as I'm going, you know, I, I, you can take notes and stuff in there. So I actually lay them out. Um, I, I, you know, I take notes in all my books uh, as, a, as a historian. I just kind of do that, but I found that that really helps when it comes time to reconstruct uh, the story, the full story, because there's their words, at least through a co-author and then I've got a lot of videos, clips, and things that I tab out and save in a different, uh, in like my my favorites folder on YouTube. So I have stuff ready to go. But I mean, in terms of watching them, there's there's what what gives the obituaries the bite, at least when I'm writing them, is when it's when it's the match that I really remember. Like I, I did, you know, uh, Tiny Lister Zeus Zeus's obituary and that weird multi-cage match that, that he had and he was a part of with Savage and Hogan and all those other people, for some reason that is burnt into my brain. The SummerSlam tag match is burnt into my brain, but it wasn't until after he passed that I saw the like one-off pay-per-view they did to sort of settle that feud with Hogan in the late eighties. I hadn't seen that. So when I was writing that, I went back and watched it. The match, the movie. That's that's right. You get the movie and you get the match. What a deal. <laughs> yeah. um, and I I had watched that. I, I thought I remembered watching that movie, No Holds Barred, on VHS. And I probably did. 
but lines in there didn't resonate with me the first time like they did the second time. I had actually watched that movie about six months before Zeus passed away. And there's just some weird stuff in there, like Hulk Hogan doing push-ups in a thong instead of making out with the girl he wants to wants to get with him. Or uh, <laughs> and it's Joan Severance villain. in her prime. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who was like a, who was what was the TV show that she was on? There was a, the one like a she, she was on a big TV show, wasn't she? I don't remember. Those, I I know she's obviously was super famous and had the big fluffy uh, hair, all that stuff. Gorgeous uh, in her prime. Yeah, it's a funny like Hogan. What are you doing? Come on. Yeah, he's really not. He's really not like she's got to pursue him. That's a really interesting part of that movie. And then the other is the the main uh, the main villain, not not Zeus. Uh, it constantly refers to Hogan as a jock ass, which. Uh, <laughs> Like, you know, like you can just picture like Vince McMahon and Hogan doing rewrites like Hogan claimed that they did on the script, shoving this stuff in there. You know, horrible. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's definitely an amazing movie to watch now. I, I can only imagine what like a 25 year old man that saw that in the theater in the 80s would have thought would have thought of it, you know. I can appreciate it today for what it is. It's this really strange film, but like, and then you can picture sort of Hogan and McMahon thinking this is going to be the beginning of some kind of, some kind of cinematic empire, which, you know, they'd later have something like that down the line. But that film is a disaster. But Zeus is so charismatic. You can't forget. He is. He really is. I mean, you do not see many guys that can can get by with uh, a weird look on, like an angry look on his face, and three wrestling moves. One of which is like the bear hug. The other is like those axe handles to the side of the head. <laughs> then, uh, you know, basic basic kick punch stuff. But he really made it really made it work. I mean, he's a believable, almost as big as Hogan. You know, believable track athlete uh, from back in the day. You know. He's, Pretty pretty darn good that the you know really really villainous look. I loved him in a few things. Oh man, now I can't remember the awesome movie with Bruce Willis um, that he was in. Damn, why can't I remember? But uh, he was in uh, Batman as well, obviously the Dark Knight. I yeah. mean, obviously Friday. But I mean, he's Friday. he's pretty. He's pretty just memorable just because not only his look, but just his voice. Like, every, I don't know, everything about him is just He's like... He's like the, uh, the general in that. It's in The Fifth Element, I think. That he fifth, yes. How can I forget that? Like, One of my favorite movies, The Fifth like Element. Alvin, yeah, just blank. That is, a, that is a great, trippy movie that I think holds up because it's not like a CGI film. Yes. You know, it's like sci-fi yes. that's like done by hand, and it's really weird. And it's got a weird cast, him being one of them. Like, people in roles that you wouldn't quite expect. Um, but yeah, he kills it in there. He he was an underrated actor. It's good. How can I forget wow. Fifth Element? Yeah, brain fart there, but love that movie. And it, he's like shockingly in it, so it's pretty cool. And with him too, it's funny. It's like okay, so he's not a really good wrestler, but did he really care that he's not wasn't a good wrestler? Like in that day and age, in that era, I mean, we kind of 
didn't care. I mean, Andre was past his prime, but we love Andre Hogan. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Those guys get a pass because they're so charismatic. They have such a good look. And really, people don't realize it, but Hogan's carrying these guys. I mean, let's let's be honest. Even though Hogan's not known for it, but he is. Yeah, I mean, I didn't I didn't realize it as a kid, and it wasn't until I began seeing. I mean, it started in the like early two thousands, late nineties that I got to see it, but. You know, Ian Douglas was on your show and I have talked about it. Hogan wrestling in New Japan could could really, really work if you forced him to. Was was doing you'd see like Hogan doing Enzigiri or something like that in a match. And there's just no reason for him to do that domestically, but he, he still managed to add drama and carry he really did like the matches of my childhood that I thought were these like Titanic struggles were him uh, often carrying heavy set men that he was wrestling mm-hmm. at the time, and and he, I think he was he carried the Ultimate Warrior. You know, he he was a a very good worker for what he did. Great facial expression, really weird too, John. That like when I think back to Hogan, it's so weird that his move set was a bad guy's move set. The eye rake, the back scratch, like he did bad guy moves. But he, you rooted for him to do it. Those are just classic things that, like, a heel would do. Forget who I was talking to about it. And they were saying, like, you know, Hiro Matsuda, and he got, trained him, and he trained down in Florida. And they were basically saying he got trained as a heel. When he came up, he's a heel. And for some reason, even <laughs> though he's a babyface, he just kept going with it. Because it got over. Like, you know, people cheered. I remember I was a kid cheering my ass off at the back rakes. So it got I over. Didn't even, I didn't even think of it as until I like really understood the sport in later years. Like I didn't even think of it as a bad guy move. I thought of it as a Hogan move. He owned it so much, but it's, it's like to watch him now you're, yeah, he continues working like a, working like a heel. And oddly enough is, is probably the one calling and carrying most of those main events heel style, you know, except he, and he kind of does a version of what Ric Flair would do in later years where he just takes a beating for 20 minutes or 10 minutes. And he, like Hogan really like sells, like he's great at putting his hand on his back to look like he's hurt his back. He makes, looks like he's crying. He really gets a good sweat going. He liked to juice if you would let him. Yep. And clearly he proved that in his later career. He, he really he has no problem getting color. Um, yeah, I've come to appreciate him more as I've gotten some, like, I didn't dislike him. I mean, I, I liked him, and then I thought he was interesting in WCW. But as I've gotten even more distance from him, like, he really managed to squeeze a lot out of a lot of these matches and a lot of these guys who often were, you know, more limited in the ring than, than the typical wrestler. So I was doing this, or still doing it, a Hogan era podcast where I f- basically focus in on Hogan. I've been a Hulkamaniac since God the mid '80s. I've just been obsessed and loved Hogan. He's kind of the reason why I fell in love with the business. But just like delving into it further, I was like, man, he's even more like impressive and important to the business than than like you even think. Because I'm looking, I'm like, wow, Harley Race. He has his house show feud, and they're selling that all over the place, yeah. and ha- having great matches. Harley Race not exactly in his prime. Then he no no. Then he's also feuding with Kamala, One Man Gang, yep. Paul yep. Orndorff, and Andre all at the same time, and they're all sellouts. So it's like this guy's and then Killer Khan. You throw him, so it's like six guys yeah, at right. once, all over the world. It's like wow, this guy's unbelievable. I'm not sure anybody has ever feuded that many monsters or like top bad guys 
at once. And he always had people like he had sub feuds, like when they were doing the later stuff that I really remember, like with the belt shift and DiBiase and Savage, mm-hmm. yep. there were like sub feuds of people that he was angry at, whether it was the genius or Hercules Hernandez or whoever, like there were bad news Brown. I think he beat yes. on Saturday night's main event yes. at one point. That's really vivid. Um, or a count out. I don't remember how that one ends, but like he has these, he has these sub feuds with guys um, and he's able to carry them all on like the extent to which he was carrying WWF during that period. And I know there were a lot of other great workers in the company, but the extent to which he was the face of that company fighting big men or bad men, like that's, it's really, it's really impressive. So I think Hulkamania is well-deserved. I mean, just from a, just from a professional standpoint, I, I know Flair had great feuds in the eighties and I know there were great feuds throughout different territories with different people. But Hogan for about a six year, five year period is just a, a machine in terms of these circuits that he's working. It's literally insane. It's insane. Because I'm working off the pay-per-view schedule, you know, not the house show schedule. In my mind, I'm and like the Saturday night main event schedule, I'm not aware of until later that there are these, that these are big money-making feuds for every guy he's with. Orndorff was a huge money-making feud. Mm-hmm. Orndorff hurt himself staying in that feud to keep getting those checks. Yeah, crazy. And to think about it, it's like, okay, who is he going to feud with in like these certain towns or this certain area for this period? Like, okay, he's shooting with Bad News Brown, but he's also feuding with Big Boss Man, but he's also... About to feud with with Macho Man. It's funny. It's like he's got like three things going on at once, and then all of a sudden, um, you know, he'll randomly have a feud with like uh, Honky Talk Man. You know what I mean? Like they'll he they just spread him so thin with so many different house show markets, and that's how they made big money then with the house shows. You know, that was like the you know their bread and butter, and he was basically the cash cow for most of them. And he was very durable for what he did for as much as he worked. I mean, I know he has aches and pains now and, you know, has slowed down a lot in the last 10 or 15, but uh, compared to some other guys, especially carrying as much of the load as he did, you know, you look, you look at like the great dynamite kid, you know, great matches, historically important matches, but each of those matches probably took a lot of time off dynamite kids wrestling career. Whereas Hogan just kept, kept on trucking. Could, could squeeze something out of Akeem or the one-man gang or whatever he was being called at that time and then do another one with bad news, just get – do something with the genius, just get uh, – I, I like to see with Earthquake. I thought that was a great monster for you. John Tepper could really go. That was one of the bigger guys that could that could work with Hogan really well, especially the, the like, early 90s, uh, like the 90 run with, with Earthquake. I didn't realize how young that guy was during that feud either. I thought he was, like, 50. John Tenta. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I thought he was like, you know, he just kind of got, he was like six years or seven years out of sumo wrestling and, and college football or whatever he'd been doing. And he, he was in there. But I thought that guy was like 45, 50 years old. Yeah, he's in like his early mid to mid 20s. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he looks, he looks older than Hogan. And, and every, you know, there's no, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, he's like 10 years guys. younger. Yeah, it's crazy. And it's unfortunate. I mean, gone too soon in his case. He was a great big man worker. 
good in everything. I, I know the WCW run was a little silly, but like Tento was a great, great worker. I like a wrestler like that. That was my favorite type of wrestler growing up. The monsters. John Tenta, big Van, especially like a specific type, like John Tenta, big Van Vader, somebody that I didn't even realize it, but they were like working a little bit more in the match, and that's why the matches were a little crisper or better. And I didn't, I didn't, it didn't click that this was like a performance, you know. But when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, that's what added that extra oomph. Sometimes a big boss man could work really well, you know, for the era as a big guy. And I didn't, you know. I didn't really understand. Like Ray Trailer worked really well when he was coming up. Didn't didn't know, but I mean that that's what added that extra layer of enjoyment. So I didn't just like big wrestlers because um, I could tell like a Ted RCD match was not going to be super exciting. Or if I had like old footage of Ivan Plitsky that I could watch, that was not going to be super exciting. But some of these guys could could work a little bit. Like I thought the Bundy match at WrestleMania two was pretty decent with Hogan. I mean, oh, Bundy yeah. got color. Yep. yep. Like you it. know, I mean, Bundy hit all the spots. But they used Bundy right. Bundy had a shape unlike any any kind of shape that that you would see, uh, like a square. Wrote his obituary. Uh, that was one of the the first or a couple the first couple I did for the for the ringer. I was sad to see him go, but. Yeah, I guess I guess that was what that was really what drew me to wrestling too, more than any like loyalty to any promotion or anything like that. It was it was like a type of wrestler and following them. You know, so if they moved from promotion to promotion or I found out they were somewhere else and I you know, from reading like the uh the, the Stu Sacks after mags or, or whatever, uh like that's what I was keeping up with. I wasn't so much interested in uh, and even wasn't during the Attitude Era. I wasn't interested in, like, the backstage gossip, except that maybe that meant this guy was coming in. Like, I, I love when Dan Severn came into WWF during the Attitude Era. I'd been following his career on the essentially the indie scene, and I had that was one of the few, like, where I had, and sort of, like, had been following him on the MMA scenes and been following him, like, all over. Like, like the Shamrock Severn era in WWF, I know people have different opinions about it, but I love that. You know, and that it didn't, it's not great wrestling, but I just, at that time, I thought that was really cool. And so that's sort of what I, I look for in, uh, when I, when I was watching, that was always what, and that's what, that's what these obituaries kind of bring out too. When it's someone that I was really interested in, like I liked watching Kamala cause he could get real air on his splashes and he he could run the ropes really fast. And so it was exciting. You know, I was, wouldn't say I was excited to write his obituary, but I, I was able to render that pretty, pretty vividly because I, he was someone that I, I was just interested in watching perform. With a lot of the guys, like you mentioned, uh, Bundy and stuff, do you get like interviews with people that were close to him? Like, do you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you do. Okay. Yeah, usually. Yeah. Usually I'll have, uh, especially now as these have gotten longer and longer, usually I'll have like, you know, Coco Ware was a good friend of, of, of Kamala, so he's quoted in there. Uh, B. Brian Blair was a huge friend, of, almost the best friend of Paul Orndorff. So that was almost a joint effort, you know, when I when I wrote that one. And I was really happy to do that. I mean, I, I you know, 
the relationship with Paul Orndorff was such a, a formative thing in the life of B. Brian Blair, who sort of remembers him as like the greatest badass in wrestling, like almost like in a kind of like brotherly or little brotherly way or something like that. Like his little protege. Yeah, yeah. I, and, you know, like the sports hero of the era, of his area in Tampa, and all of these other things. So the, anytime I can get something extra in there, I have a contact uh, in my Rolodex or a friend does. Uh, Ian's hooked me up with a lot of people. I like to get that in as soon as possible to add that extra bite, you know. So when I can do that, that's a, that's a great help. Or, you know, when I, can, when I can pull from material that hasn't really been touched before either, you know, whether it's an interview that's never been talked about or a random old match that maybe hasn't gotten enough, I can drop that in. Or, like I said, pulling from, like, their prior career to wrestling, if it's tied to sports or something like that, I try to put that in there. So these little extra value ads, I, I think, are I think are great. But, I mean, the, the quotes the quotes really, really sell the story. I think the Paul Warndorf obituary is probably the best one that I did because so much research on his sports career that wasn't out there and parts of it were not out there anywhere. Like, you could uh, – there was one thing that – you know, Ian Douglas and I worked to confirm Brian Blair told a story on a sort of without even knowing like that there was any credence or like any historical record of it about how Orndorff fended off a half dozen cops or something like that in a Tampa bar when he went in to help his brother in a fight. And un- believe it or not, there's an actual article in the newspaper about from like 80 or 79 or something like that of Orndorff being arrested for this fight. They described the number of people he fought. Uh, they basically note that he fought the whole bar. Uh, he set out on like a $5,000 bond for that time. That, that actually was confirmed in, in the story. I think that's a cool detail about Paul Orndorff, especially because Brian Blair is telling it almost like a tall tale, but then I'm like, you know, we have the action. This is, I have the, the clip in this file of clips I had for the story. And I'm like, Brian, I, I mean, I have this clip, so I'll text it to you. You can, you can look at it. This is, this is actually, I mean, we have the record on this. You know, that was really cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I can't, I can't do that every, I mean, that doesn't happen every time, but that was a, like I said, that one was special. I, I went the extra mile on that one because, uh, in working with Christ Blair on it, he just really loved that guy, you know, and I wanted that to come out in the, uh, come out in the piece more than anything else. Do you feel a sense of responsibility? Like, I know it's kind of Shoemaker's fault because he keeps putting you in this situation where you have to write all these obituaries, but <laughs> um, do you feel a sense of um, responsibility? Like, man, I better, you know, make this grandiose, you know, this is the King Kong Bond, the legend, Paul. Like, are you, not like nervous when you'd be like, man, I better not screw this up. I got to really make this big. Uh, I definitely, uh, I mean, I, I appreciate that he, he uses me for the historical pieces. I've done some for them that aren't obituaries, but most of them are obituaries. Um, but I, I definitely feel, I, I've never been a big fan of gossip in the industry then or now. I mean, now there's, and I guess there's reasons for it, you know, breaking stories about, current problems in the industry or, you know, whether it's problems with harassment or drugs or whatever, I know those things exist, but they exist in every industry and there are people who cover them and I'm not one of them. Uh, and I feel a, a duty to, I mean, I'll address that in the obituaries if it's unavoidable. 
but I'm generally not going to be writing an obituary of someone who was so objectionable that you couldn't you couldn't make an obituary for casuals about them. So when I do write the piece, I I definitely feel a duty to to do this person right. Like they might have an autobiography out, they might have some other things out, but I want to make one thing that can sort of sit at the top of the Google searches and be part of the permanent record for that person and, and, and be true to what they were trying to accomplish or as true as I think uh, I can get it, you know? So I really do take that seriously. And that's why, uh, you know, and, and, you know, like a lot of times we, you know, David might suggest the subject, you know, like quickly the day that it happened uh, or that, you know, when it's coming up. And sometimes I suggest somebody that we might not have done otherwise, but usually it's someone that's that's known. And I just take them as they come in that sense, because most of the folks that are that are being covered are still out of that formative era of watching wrestling for me. Definitely. Or they yeah. or they were right there at kind of the tail and tail end of their careers in the beginning of my watching career, like Bob Armstrong with the really jacked Brad Armstrong on the, you know, the WCW TV, you know, like at least touching on that experience. So I, I, I definitely feel that, that duty. And I, I, I'm glad that I have a chance to do it. I mean, some of them are obviously more detailed, better than others. And occasionally like there have been times I'll get a fact wrong here or there. And like a webpage, like the cult of Cornette, uh, that group on, on Facebook will note it, but it's, it's like piddling stuff usually, but you know, that to non-casuals, that's, that's the, that's the, the real meat, you know, like, no, no, that happened in Memphis, not in Chattanooga, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I mean, that's important. Like that's important to get the, the historical trivial record, right. But at the same time, I'm trying to do justice, like, like thematically to the person. And I'm trying to make sure the story is good and is readable. And the other thing about the obituaries is I, I always get them out within 48 hours. They could be 7,000 words with interviews and they'll still come out in a day or two. I make a point. I prioritize doing that. I mean, there's a reason, there's other reasons why I do that, but like I make a, I make a point of prioritizing getting those out when they, when that happens. I only did four last year. They just have, there just weren't more, as many like notable incidents as there were in the previous year. But that, like I said, the Orndorff one was the best one that I've, I've ever done for them. To me too, a lot of these guys like Orndorff, Bundy, Bob Armstrong, they're all larger than life. You know what I mean? Like yes. it takes yeah. on like a, another level of um, just of a story to me. Cause it's like, wow, like Orndorff. Wow. Bundy. It's, they're I'm not saying that huge. Adam Cole isn't a, isn't, you know, Adam Cole Bebe isn't a great wrestler or anything like that. Um, and he's, he's, he's an excellent craftsman, you know, great, great wrestler, understands what he's doing, understands the sport, understands everything. Uh, but visually, you know, were I to see him, I mean, my dad was a huge muscular guy. You know, my dad looked like Big Van Vader. And <laughs> like what I, what I wanted to see in like a piece, like, I, I, you know, I know that that's like silly. I know the product has evolved. The audience is older. The demographic, I know we talked about the key demographic and whatnot, but like the audience, the audience in that key demographic is skewing older. The fans have grown up with the product. A lot of the top performers are almost like wrestling nerds themselves who perform in the ring and they're great. Like they produce like really matches that are really like informed by history and tradition and technique and everything. 
But, I mean, King Kong Bundy is unforgettable. Like, it's unfortunate, right? Like, King Kong Bundy is more unforgettable than Adam Cole. I would go on the record and say that. No, no knock on Adam Cole. It's just like if I saw both of those men, there would be one that would be like more vivid, you know, especially if I were a small boy, you know, like one of those would stick in my mind. Hogan was larger than life. Mm-hmm. And we, we still have a few people like that today, but they seem more manufactured. There's nothing manufactured about King Kong Bundy coming up through the territories, like shaving his head for the first time down in Dallas or wherever he did it for the first time coming up in Memphis fighting Lawler, or all of that stuff. That that's like totally, that's like totally original to that, that huge, like, you know, just, just like walking wall of, you know, just this brick wall of a person. Uh, and yes, Vince McMahon took him and rode, ran with it and, and found uses for him, but didn't create him. You know, a lot of the guys that Vince, um, all the guys that Vince had great success with in the in the early to mid '80s, he plucked out of places where they had already formed their characters and their legend and their appearance, and he just found ways to make that more colorful and more marketable. But uh, today's now, that's not like a criticism of today's game. Like, I, I think that the match quality is just better. I mean, I think that the the interview quality is just better. They're all better public speakers. I mean, the lowliest wrestler is a better public speaker than, you know, like out, you know, like outlaw Ron Bass on the mic or something, just sort of at random. Like, the, the somebody after three months in NXT is going to be better on the mic. But there's something because it's so professionalized in its practices, even, even like in the Indies, like even the most unique looking indie wrestlers today are still kind of, they're still coming up behind what I saw the first time, you know, they, and they know those people too. They're like King Kong Bundy wasn't like studying the history and tradition of wrestling to be King Kong Bundy. Big Van Vader wasn't, they were, they were brand new to themselves, you know, Whereas somebody like Keith Lee, uh, you know, unfortunately gone too soon from the WWE, though, when I when I realized how old he was as he was breaking in, I, I assumed, you know, there might be there might be a short time for Keith Lee. But Keith Lee was like really self-aware that he was in this tradition of mobile big men. I don't think Leon White was like aware. <laughs> he was a, like he was like part of the lineage of that, you know. Yep. He wasn't, he, he didn't have that knowledge. You know, he had the pro football background. He had the look, he had the skill, but he didn't have, um, he wasn't sitting there like binging old matches to maybe, maybe watching his matches to improve. I think he even says that he, he did that uh, in some places, but like not binging like 1960s San Francisco wrestling or something to understand how Pat Patterson <laughs> used to work. You know, or binge in like joint promotions wrestling from over in England. He wasn't sitting there doing that. Uh, whereas somebody like Chris Hero clearly was. Uh, and good for them because he has great matches that incorporate all those elements. But uh, and again, getting back to that, like, in a strange way, like today's guys are much better craftsmen, technically speaking. But they're not as, they're not as colorful or memorable. Maybe and partly that's aging, and I'm I'm jaded because I've seen a lot of it. But 
Uh, and maybe the quality is just so high, it's easy to take it for granted. But definitely, there'll be nothing I can write about any new wrestler that's as vivid as what I can I can write about old wrestlers. Like I interviewed, you know, PCO for Mel Magazine, and that was a feature sort of on his career revival as this like Frankenstein type character. And when he was in the Indies before he signed with Ring of Honor, just before he did. And he was sort of in character there. But I was only able to render that piece really well because I under I, you know, followed him during his first WWF heyday. And I was like, this is a big dude. He can really move. You know, he had that funny moment in the brawl for all too. You know, why, why do you have a guy with one eye in the brawl for all? Yeah. So like, that's why I was able to, that's why I was able to, to get so much out of his interviews. Also, he just loves, loves lifting weights. And that's, that's something else I can capture in there. But he, uh, I mean, like, he's not a new wrestler, in my opinion. He's, he's just another, like, unusual throwback that's just having some, it's had some success recently. Um, but yeah, I mean, in terms of the new, the truly new, like, I'm, None of that, none of that strikes me quite the same. But maybe it would be different if I were a kid today and I didn't have access to having lived through it once. I mean, I'm sure music nerds, it's the same way. If you lived through the Beatles or Elvis or whatever your favorite group was, you know, and then everybody else is performing like them. It seems even if they sound better, it isn't as it isn't as vivid. It's definitely not as popular though. People can argue and whatever, but the, the numbers <laughs> don't lie. It's not as popular as it once was. I'm I'm with you there. I mean. If we're just going on raw, like, like ba- you know, basic ratings, definitely not. If we're going on, um, if we're going on cultural penetration, I don't think it is. Even if it's covered on ESPN now, I don't think it is. Even if it's on Fox, I don't think it is. Even if John Cena and The Rock are in movies, I, I, I think you're right, John. Like, I don't believe that. I, I know people would argue it. Some people would say like. With the core fan base, I've seen this argument, with the core fan base, it's more popular than it's ever been, and the fan base is more knowledgeable than it's ever been. But I look at it as when I get especially like a good paying like writing commission about a wrestling person, it's somebody that casuals know, and those people are usually from the 80s and 90s in some sense, or 70s. Like, that's who the public still knows. Like, I think the honky-tonk man probably has a higher profile in some sense than, you know, like Brian Cage. I would I would stake money on that. I think the honky-tonk, I think Jake the Snake Roberts does. It's so funny, like, all those guys... And you could not even like main event guys, even though Jake the Snake's a big star and Honky Tonk is a huge star. But it's funny, like the lesser guys all are, I think, more, more yeah. well known than the guys today by a lot, like by by a ton. But if you start going bigger names like Andre and Hulk and stuff, I mean, forget about it. Demolish stratosphere. Level. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's that's the that's like God tier wrestling recognition. Andre the Giant is in a league of his own. I mean, but even at that lower level, like you said, like if you're somebody who's like, uh, you know, I would say that, uh, you know, like FTR, for example, versus the Bushwhackers. I mean, one of them's a much better wrestling team, although the Bushwhackers got a five-star match under their, 
under their belt, they have one. Um, but the uh, like the Bushwhackers have higher name recognition than probably any working tag team right now, or very close to it, other than maybe the New Day. You know, in so, like in terms of like a, recognized as a unit or a tag team, and that's just a lower tier. I mean, in the WBF universe, you know, not the Sheep Herders universe, but like in the WBF universe, that's a that's a lower tier group. Never, never won anything. Lick people's heads on the way to the ring. Unforgettable. People remember Dusty Rhodes. People remember the polka dot Dusty Rhodes as well as anything. Those vignettes, like plum and toilets and stuff. Sapphire. Everybody is, it's funny, like, just from that era. Like, somebody was saying to me the other day, like, the Ultimate Warrior is more popular than, like, Roman Reigns and all these other guys. I was like, well, well, I was like, of course. (laughs) Definitely. I was like, he's around in that era when 30 million people are watching. And I don't know, it just, that era just seemed to be unforgettable. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't want to come across as, like, this huge nostalgia fan. I mean, the fact that I, I do write, wrestling history and have done different wrestling history projects and stuff. I mean, yeah, it means I have an interest in, in the past, but I think just objectively uh, that era, that era is what, what that era is what everybody will always reflect on. And I feel like even try to, when people are trying to create drama in wrestling today or trying to create visibility for wrestling today, I feel like they invoke that era, but it's just, it's a, like a, a picture of a picture of a picture, you know, like it's not, it's not the same. There's no way. There's nobody like the ultimate warrior will, will have more name recognition than people in 10 years. You know, he'll, he'll be like 20 years out from being dead and still be better known. Mm-hmm. Some people might even still think he's alive. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and no slight against Reigns. I love Reigns. He's probably my favorite current no, guy. But better and better. No, no slight. Better and better. He's great on the mic now. They took him out of that stupid shirt he was wearing too, which is great. Like he's not in bad shape at all. Why? Why have the? Why have the shield members wear this dumb bulletproof vest? Why have Roman continue wearing a vest? Dumb. It's pretty funny when it's like you know physique business. The guy is jacked to the to the gills. It's like nah, let's cover him up. Like yeah. You know, he's, yeah, eight, he's 285, as, like, yeah, hey, cover him up. He's not as ripped as some guys, but he's, like, uh, he's like up there. I mean, he's... Football player so body, right, yeah. Yeah, he's, he's just, and which he was in Georgia Tech. He was, yeah. a, he was a good college football player, and, like, yeah, I, I think he is, I think he is really, he's, like, like, a work ethic superstar. Like, he's made it happen just by working. Everything that he does has gotten better. I, I can't even picture him as Shield Roman Reigns, and I mean I, I I sort of can, but like like what he is now is just very different. He he chews scenery on TV. He's he's actually a main event player, and he's he's made himself that way. I don't know that there's really been anybody that's kind of made themselves that way. Like I, I guess John Cena is an example, just kind of forced themselves to be good a good performer. Uh, the Rock to a certain extent too. Now Steve Austin, a natural, but like The Rock, John Cena, there's guys that have forced themselves to become these sort of next level things. And Roman's up there. I don't know if he'll have the same. I don't think he'll cross over the same way. But he's 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 become a, a, a true main event talent. I think he's a great performer. 
he's like that next guy, even even in era where supposedly they don't want to have the next guy for whatever crazy reason, yeah. but he's definitely the next guy. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, it probably upsets some fans because the WWF clearly wanted to make him the next guy. I mean, at a certain point it was realized he needs to be the next guy, but there were kind of ups and downs with that, and then he just sort of seized the reins uh, himself, as, as it were, and... Uh, you know, the persona he's developed in the past year or two has, has been what has really gotten him over. He's he's a phenomenal performer now. The best in the business, maybe. Him and, well, Brock is, is, is back, but Reigns is definitely uh, either one or two. Yeah, yeah, Brock is up there. Brock, uh, Brock, Brock is getting better on the, or just using the microphone more. Um, he's He's a great talent for what he does. I'm I'm very partial. I know not everybody is. I'm I'm very partial to Bobby Lashley as a uh, as a performer, and I, I know that's that's strange. But I think they've done a great job of packaging people around him who can talk. And Bobby Lashley has the best look I've ever seen in pro wrestling. I've never seen another performer that looks like that. It's like he's like halfway to fifty. Oh, he's huge. He looks like uh, the Incredible Hulk. And he's got like a very small head too, so his body has almost like a turtle shell look, <laughs> you know. Like, and and but he's kept he's kept that look better than just about anybody that I, I like I can remember because I remember so many of the steroid guys from the '80s just kind of rotting, like superstar Billy Graham, from this phenomenal look to this kind of all these different like variations, like withered bicep or like. Uh, you know, looking weird when he had a mustache and wore karate pants. So just all these changes. Or even Scott Steiner, when I think his pecs blew out or something. How of these guys have had pec tears that have changed the way they look? And unaddressed pec tears. Uh, but Bobby Lashley still looks like a million bucks. And can still do a lot in the ring. And the fact that he's made it as a top guy. I mean, people will say oh, it's very easy because, you know, Vince just likes muscle men. But Bobby Lashley had a terrible speaking voice early on in his career. Um, he was handed the like he was handed the ball early in his career, just didn't didn't run with it. Um, won like eighteen MMA fights against average to like bum tier people. Uh, I you know I'm impressed with the guys. I like the Brock feud right now. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, not everybody would. Not everybody does, but. I I think that's a cool. Uh, I, I thought you know using MVP with him was a wise move. MVP is a great microphone performer, and a solid wrestler this time. I, again, I didn't appreciate him on his first go round. I didn't like him actually, but now I see the value that that guy brings. He's almost like a Paul Heyman uh, level, perf- not quite, no, not, but he's he's sort of like a Paul Heyman light who can wrestle if you need him to. He definitely raised Lashley's game. I'm just surprised they didn't save Lashley versus Lesnar for Mania. Yeah, that seems to me to be a Mania match. Like, make it a Mania match and just let them lay it into each other. Just go as stiff as you can in that match. I know neither guy probably wants to do it at his age, but that would be, you know, Stan Hansen levels of stiff. Just, Just beat each other. And that can kind of be the culmination of sort of the last frontier for Brock. It's like the big challenge for Lashley. 
just maybe you can maybe you can get another match out of it. Maybe you can maybe you can continue it into uh, or or you know in some form or fashion get it into Mania. I don't know, but still, I'm still cool feud in my opinion. Unless Lesnar versus Reigns for both titles is the main event, but I just yeah, was like wow, I can't probably. believe. Like, I can't believe, wow, Lashley, almost like, not wasting it on Royal Rumble, but that, that's a WrestleMania match to me, considering they're both there for, for, like, kind of passing moments for many, many years, and they somehow never locked horns. And they have a good story and a good reason, too. And they've done some good vignettes and stuff to highlight that. And Lashley's talked trash about Lesnar's MMA career and vice versa. And the weigh-in was kind of funny. Uh but like, like that to me, that's a great story. But I, I know, like, probably unifying the belts and things like that is more important. Like putting Reigns over for once and for all um, is probably the most important thing for them as a company. But for me as a fan, yeah, that's the storyline I would take into WrestleMania. So, as far as kind of some of the other things you've written about, I know. Besides the obituaries, but I know you've covered other things. What else have you written about for wrestling? Uh, I had a, I've done stuff on like blood in wrestling. I had a long piece on the history of blood and wrestling for the ringer. I've done things on like history of interpromotional wars. I've done, uh, do I like to get a chance to profile new wrestlers that strike me as like visually impressive. So uh, even though he kind of he kind of washed out, uh, I had a long piece on Lars Sullivan, sort of in the context of the various angels of the past, the French angel and these kind of like hideous faced uh, men, uh, the Swedish angel and all that. I, I did a piece like that. Um, uh, I did a piece on like long piece on Otis, uh, who is now sort of getting his in the WWE, and that's nice to see. But sort of an, the unusual body type and athletic background of Otis. Um, so pieces like that. I did a piece on Bobby Lashley uh, as a pose-down artist when he was in that pose-down phase. Um, and the wrestling pose-down, you know, like looking at different pose-down performers over time from, you know, Graham to Jesse Ventura to Hogan to Rick Rude to on and on, you know, like culminating in like Lashley was doing that posing routine for a while. Like the old so uh, Rick Rude ultimate warrior pose down. Yeah. I thought, which I thought again was kind of a cool, uh, kind of a cool thing. I mean, but then again, I thought it was a cool angle when, you know, triple H and Scott Steiner had a feud that was built around arm wrestling and bench pressing and, um, uh, flexing and these sorts of things. Even if the whole point was, you know, triple H explaining that wrestling is bigger than all that stuff and more important than all that stuff. But yeah, that's, those are other pieces that I've tackled. They're all kind of off that same theme of big wrestlers, muscular wrestlers. I've talked about and just haven't done the work to pull it all together, pulling all this stuff together, adding like new interview material and new uh, other stuff uh, for, you know, Jonathan Snowden has this like hybrid shoot publishing arm uh, that he put his excellent Ken Shamrock biography out with and you know a few other books have come out like The Way of the Blade by uh, Phil Schneider uh, you know great great history of bloody matches you know his favorite bloody matches over a long period of time but I've wanted to do one on 
big muscular wrestlers. Just pulling together everything I've done on big muscle men wrestlers and big wrestlers. Carrie, and maybe I'll maybe I'll pull that together in 2022. Carrie <laughs> Von Erich, Lex Luger, yeah, yeah, Warrior. Right, right. I did a whole Carrie Von Erich uh, photo, well Von Erich and Freebirds photo exhibit when I was a professor at the University of Texas at Arlington. We had this photo archive of, of fan taken photos. One guy, Sirius Bono, had taken all of these ringside photos, which were designed to capture the fan experience uh, in Fort Worth at the uh, the Will Rogers arena. Like, and so that was just tons of Von Eric stuff. And so I got to talk to Kevin Von Eric about that for like the little intro section. And, you know, Mark Lowrance, who'd been the uh, announcer came out oh, yeah. and did a, did a spiel. Um, John Mantell did a spiel. Uh, taught, you know, like people who were coming to the exhibit to talk, like would listen, you know, these guys did like when we unveiled it, they talked and, uh, you know, they were also at some of the events or around it, but that was really cool. And again, I kind of handpicked the photos now. I mean, I, I included a lot of the workers, the Iceman King Parsons and the John Mantells and this sort of thing. But I, I really like there were Andre shots from 83. I got them in there. There were Bundy shots when he had hair. Um, I got those in there. There were tons of Kevin Von Erich shots. Some of Kerry looking really good, but like Kevin Von Erich looking like the best of that bunch, especially ones where he's wearing the crimson mask over his whole face, like every piece of his face. Oh. And so I really layered the, I laid that on thick uh, in terms of the, uh, in terms of the photos chosen for this. You know, lots of if it was if I could do the free birds, it was usually Gordy. It's big. So those are my those are my interests, John. Like, I, I don't know what it is. I've just always been been drawn to like your body that type of size. Yeah. Yeah. That type of size in wrestling. I find it interesting. I think that those photos were the most visually compelling. Like, you know, watching there's like one of uh, of Andre wrestling King Kong Bundy that I, I was able to use. You see it was how freaking big Andre's melon head is compared to Bundy's, the way that the, the photo is angled. There's a, a great, a couple great ones of Kamala where you just get a sense of his, uh, his size, you know? So putting those in there, that, that's what I, I had like 40 slots for photos in the exhibit area. And I, although I got a good cross section in there and I had about 10 that were just of the crowd because that was really the photographer's intention to show what it was like at ringside. And I mean that, like the the Fort Worth crowds from '83, were on you know they were truly like these regional, um, truly like these like timepieces. Like every it was so different. Each era was area would be so different. And these were these were true Texas fans that would be there at ringside, like old women who were genuinely mad and yelling at the bad guys and so on. Kids, you know, who looked genuinely scared or excited. I mean, it was cool. To, it was cool to do for sure. So those are those are some of the other things that I've uh, I've worked on. So if you think about it too, I mean, you've done a lot of great obituaries. You've done a lot of um, great professing, if you will, if you're doing stuff related to the Von Erickson world class. What's next for you? What, what do you got? Like, what's what's coming up? Well, this year, uh, like I said, I really want to get the, uh, I really want to get the, um, get that book I mentioned out the door, you know, 
uh, or at least to get a start on it. And uh, definitely more obituaries. Um, I don't know who those will be. You know, it's it's a grab bag. But but the book, pulling this stuff together finally, because, you know, I've probably got 200 or 300 features out there on this stuff now. Not all of it's on, like, muscle wrestlers. Uh, getting getting it into book form, and I, I've talked about it with my friend Ian Douglas, too. Like, getting it into book form is important just to have something lasting, you know, even if, whether it sells or doesn't sell, you know. Like, I have something that, you know, I can put on the shelf, show my daughter when, you know, she she begins reading. Uh, wants to read a book on muscle wrestlers for some reason. <laughs> but that's that's what my – I'd like to get that done in 2022 and maybe – uh, I'm always working story to story, you know, in freelance and in my day job is writing too. Like I'm a, a marketing copywriter. So always there's like a daily assignment that gets in the way of, of like a longer term project. So my big thing is, is John, so like 2022 to, to get a big project done or started at least and keep doing the other stuff, but get that big project out of the way. Cause I'm, I've been doing this for a while now. I'm, like a decade or more on, on, you know, selling wrestling stories, at least a lot of stuff before that. I've been in, been in, did e-wrestling way back when I was like 12, 13 years old, like fantasy wrestling writing. Uh, that was a good five, six years of my life. So I've just been in it some form or fashion for a long time, but I like to just have one sort of culminating piece, you know, the book. That's what hopefully will be next. So as we head towards the finish, we wind it down. Just a couple quick hitters for you. What's your favorite, yeah. favorite promotion of all time? Wrestling. Oh, in terms of booking, Bill Watts in Mid-South would be the closest to my sensibility. You know, especially watching back through all that. When I went, when I had, first I had the Blu-ray and then, then, you know, I was able to watch bits and pieces back in the day. Then I had the Blu-ray collection that WWE pushed out and then to watch all of it on the network it's clear that that guy is booking a federation the way I would do it, which is big men, athletes, athletic presentation, hard hitting. I think that that's, I don't know that that would sell the most, but that's definitely what, you know what I mean? That's definitely what I would consider my ideal, uh, ideal promotion. That's how I would do it. What is your favorite like moment or memory in wrestling? Favorite moment um, all time. What's the one that will really, really stick with me? I'm trying to think. I'm just trying to see, like, when he, when you ask me that, like, what's the most vivid? Because I don't want to go with like the best match I've seen, but like the most vivid thing, the thing that will always uh, stick with me in a in a match. Then the other criteria being that, like, I saw it when I was a kid, you know, or when I was a teenager. There's a couple things, like Austin Hart, that would just always stick with me. I think that was just incredibly vivid. Um, Hart Bulldog, SummerSlam, for some reason, that's just in there. Um Gold Dust Piper in the street fight. Don't know why. It just is. Uh, really. So, and then 
honestly, like the one I can remember clear as day from like the, the bumps he took and on, uh, Adrian Adonis and Roddy Piper at WrestleMania three. I don't know why Adonis is like so fat at that point in his career. He used to be so athletic, but there's just something I, I was, I was actually aware of and like able to follow that feud going in. And for whatever reason, like the heat, like I thought it was well worked. That was a great match. It kind of debuted the barber beefcake as the barber beefcake. I don't know why that's so vivid. That honestly might be the most vivid memory that I have in wrestling for some reason. Yeah, that is weird, but I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah, that's just like when I'm like, yeah, asking that question, like, what's what's there? Like when I sit right now, I think that, that's there. Who's your favorite wrestler of all time? I mean, there's all kinds of answers that, that you can give there, you know, like the best technical wrestler, the best wrestler, to see, you know, best best match quality, best this, best that. But just in terms of, like, somebody whose matches where I can say I I watched everything I could get my hands on, I mean, from, like, and then went back and watched even more um, as, as YouTube stuff began to, to drop, uh it would have to be Leon White, Big Van Vader, just because I I was prioritizing watching him throughout his WCW run. Like I was prioritizing getting my hands on those pay per view VHSs as soon as I could. Like I that was important. So I would say he's probably he's probably number one all time for me. I almost feel like I, I wish he'd beaten Sean in their big match. I wish he'd gone over. I, I know he'd upset the wrong people, but that he would be my uh, he would be my all time favorite. Yeah, they screwed him up royally for knowing how to quote unquote book big men. How do you screw that? How yeah. do you screw that one? Yeah, up? Yeah, oh my that was, god! That should have been a slam dunk. I mean, I know he wasn't. There were things about him that might not have been like WWE perfect. Like his physique was less than ideal by that point. Like if he looked like Bull Power Leon White. I think, uh, or bigger, but like that, like, I think, I think he would have gone further, but he was dealing with injuries and stuff at that time. And they, they still, that should have still been a slam dunk. You know, Yokozuna had the strap. And it's funny too, because Michael's people, for some reason, vision is history. I think the worst drawing champion ever. I know he had to go up against the NWO, so it's kind of unfair to him, but he was terrible as champ. Shake it up a little bit. I know he had good matches, but he wasn't drawing anything. Give Vader the, the, like a little run there. I know they gave Sid a little mini run, but they should have gave yeah, Vader you know the mean, title. Vader could have been somebody you could have drawn for the chase, you know? Like, he would have been a great, like, annihilating people coming close but not quite beating him. You could have run a year or two on that. I, I, I mean, again, it would have worked. I mean, maybe it would have worked. I don't know. I wasn't privy to how that went down, but I... I feel like it would have drawn, especially with him having the right mouthpiece, with him having a cornet or something. What about just uh, all-time you in wrestling? Is there, like, something, like a live event you went to or something that attached you to wrestling? You know, like, you know, they would say like, somebody, like, for me, I saw Hogan, went to a live event a few, you know, years later and never looked back. Is there something that kind of, Made you a fan just forever? Was there something that stuck out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I went to an autograph signing uh, at a Walmart in Williamson, North Carolina, Eastern North Carolina, wow. where 
Ivan Koloff, who was living in that part of the country at that time, was sitting down, signing autographs, kind of at the tail end of his, I, I mean, I would realize that later, his WCW run. And I was just struck by, uh, and my dad pointed out to me, oh, he's a lot shorter than he looks on TV. And for whatever reason, I, I, don't, I don't know, just that proximity to that guy there, I'm seeing him on TV and like chain matches and stuff. I don't know. It's just that just that just made that connection. There might have been inheriting like my brother's like horde of the like late 70s, early 80s after magazines and reading them, trying to figure out like the pages were yellowing, trying to figure out what the hell was going on. You know, trying to piece together the history just like I do in the obituaries now. And some of that stuff was like fiction to me, you know, because I didn't, I couldn't, hadn't seen it, you know, hadn't seen some of those like Memphis area feuds. But they'd be written about in there. So as far as you, where can everybody find everything that there is to know about Oliver Bateman? Uh, two simple places, OliverBateman.com. Uh, all my writing, all my socials are connected through there. I'm also on Twitter as at Mustache Club US. You know, just just request me on there and I'll I'll add you. Um, I like to say I keep that locked down just because I I write during the day and I don't want my my bosses to say, oh, you're not writing this piece because you're writing a tweet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> not that, like they, that, not that they are, but like that's just. Uh, but those are the two places that folks can find me. Nice. All right. Anything else you want to plug? Any uh, big obituary you want to plug? You want everybody to check out anything else? Well, keep watching the wires to see who uh, who drops because, you know, that if it's big enough, people will ask me, you know, if it's somebody that's, that's uh, maybe a great territorial worker or something who passed away, you know, you'd be doing this one. Probably not. But if it's Terry Funk or somebody like that, and I know the Funker's uh, not in good health, um, it could be something like that this year. All right. Awesome stuff, Oliver. Thank you so much for all the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, John, great conversation. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You can check us out on Facebook. You can subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash TMPT Empire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother. <laughs>